This morning's reading is from Hebrews chapter 6. If you'd like to take the Bibles from the back of the uh, church, uh, the uh, chairs in the church, it's on page 1205. That's Hebrews chapter 6. And I'll be reading from verse 13. In, uh, in the Bibles we have here, it's headed, The Certainty of God's Promise. So it's Hebrews chapter 6, reading from verse 13, on page 1205. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Philip. As we sit, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it can be completely trusted. And we pray that uh, you will speak to us through it now. By your spirit, you'll bring it alive to our hearts. May it be a comfort and encouragement to your people this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Roll VT. That's the trailer to the 2013 Alfonso Cuaron uh, movie, Gravity, in which Sandra Bullock proves that she is more than just a great comic actress. Uh, It is uh, an incredible film, but that trailer 
is, is heart-stopping, isn't it? She's been separated from the space shuttle on which she was working. She is floating in space. No one can hear her. There is nothing to grab hold of. She is just floating. And she can do nothing. I don't know if you're the sort of person that when you watch that, try to imagine what that must be like. But it's horrifying, isn't it? I mean, it reminds me a bit of, I've told you before about the first time I tried parachuting. I tried to swim in the air as I exited the aeroplane, which is, of course, totally fruitless. There's nothing I could do. I had to rely on the parachute. But there, in that moment, Sandra Bullock's character is floating in space. There is nothing at all to hold on to, nothing to cling to for security. She is completely alone. And I think it captures brilliantly the, the sort of idea of, of being insecure, of having nothing to sort of put your feet against, nothing to rest against, nothing to rely on, to be completely alone. completely powerless. And it strikes me that one of the kind of great endeavors of human civilization is to find that safety, that security, that something to hold on to that will get you through. I don't, I don't know uh, what that might look like in, in, in your life. There are various things we build around ourselves or try to uh, accumulate to give us that security, that certainty, that sort of sense of having something to, to cling on to. It, perhaps it's family. Family relationships kind of offer the promise of, uh, of security when everything else fails, when, when no one else will help you, your family will. Perhaps it's family, perhaps it's the state. You know, no matter what happens to my health, the NHS will be there for me. No matter what happens to me financially, the, the government will provide, we hope. They provide us with security, uh, a police force to uphold the rule of law, uh, and armed forces to protect us from potentially hostile nations. The state offers us some security, doesn't it? But I think for, if you were to go out and, uh, and ask on the streets, of Brighton and Hove, where do you find security? Or what can you do to make yourself secure? A lot of people will think you're asking about, you know, retirement planning, your pension. I think you're talking about money. Because money is the thing that underpins so much of what we rely on. A roof over your head, a warm house, food on the table. Money is the thing we rely on to deliver all of that. And it has that sort of image of being something you can trust, something that you can fall back on. A nest egg, you've provided security for yourself. And you can imagine that for the people the writer to the Hebrews is addressing, and perhaps for us too sometimes, 
When the writer to the Hebrews is saying, God has promised you this rest. He has promised you a kingdom. He has promised you that you will dwell with him in a new heavens and a new earth, enjoying life as it was meant to be forever. A promise feels like a fairly flimsy thing to build your life on. When you're being persecuted, when you're suffering for being a Christian, when being a Christian is making life harder rather than easier, it's tempting to think, if I just had something I could really hold on to, some sort of security. Now, now some of the readers, some of the original hearers uh, of this letter would, would have been thinking about the sort of temple ministry in Jerusalem, that they, there was a sort of tangible priesthood, uh, priests they could see and touch and, and, and gain a sense of closeness to God going to the temple. But for others, surely the, the sort of promise of earthly possessions providing security in an uncertain world must have been a great lure, and I'm sure it is for us. Compared to the certainty of financial independence, basing your life on a promise seems pretty flimsy. That's what the writer's encouraging us to do, verse 12 of chapter 6 on page 1205. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The writer's saying, build your life on that promise. Put your certainty in that promise. Find safety and security in that promise, as we'll see. That seems pretty flimsy, doesn't it? But look at it another way. All of those things that we've talked about, the state, the family, money, all of those things are actually really only promises. We trust that the state will take care of us because of the social contract, because there's a promise that the state will do that. We trust in our families because of relationships, because of that kind of sense of connection, of of promise to each other. And money itself isn't real. I don't know whether you realize that, uh, but if you don't realize that, you need to watch Mary Poppins. Okay, so um, Mary Poppins, uh, it's a little bit on the nose. The family are called the Banks, and their dad works uh, in a bank. Uh, and uh, indeed, the comedians Mitchell and Webb did a, a sketch about Mary Poppins in which the father was called Mr. Works in a Bank. But um, one of the children can't get his money out of the bank, and he starts complaining, saying, the bank won't give me my money, the bank won't give me my money. Uh, and then everyone hears this, and, and it starts a run on the bank. And the bank can't keep going because everyone's trying to take their money out because they don't believe that the bank can actually pay them the money and because they don't believe it actually the bank starts to fail and we've seen that haven't we begin to happen in a couple of the recent financial crises where banks have actually been under threat and there's been a run on a bank because people are scared they won't be able to get their money out if they don't get it out now that the bank's going to fail and of course that failure of trust results in a failure of the bank. But it's not just banks, it's money itself. Money is a social technology. It it, it is based on a a mutual set of binding promises, uh, and it relies, in the end, on something undergirding it, and most generally, that is uh, the power of a nation-state. The the, the nation-state itself sort of undergirds the value of money, which is just a series of promises. But the nation-state can't always do that. 
So if you imagine that it's 100 years ago, exactly 100 years ago, and you're living in Bonn or Munich or Leipzig, in the Weimar Republic of Germany, a year ago, a loaf of bread would have cost you 160 marks. At Christmas 1923, Christmas 1922, 160 marks for a loaf of bread. Do you know how much a loaf of bread cost at Christmas 1923? 200000000000 billion marks. The state wasn't able to uh, guarantee the value of the currency, uh, and so uh, a, a kind of vicious cycle of hyperinflation occurred. As they tried to damp it down by printing more money, it just made it worse and worse, to the point at which massive fortunes were wiped out overnight. Noble, wealthy German families became paupers in the course of weeks, as the millions that they'd set aside were suddenly less valuable than a loaf of bread. People would rush to the shops at the end of the working day when they were paid uh, because if they waited till the next morning, nothing would be affordable. The currency was inflating that fast. The state could no longer underpin the value of the currency and it became worthless. You see, everything we trust in, everything we rely on, is basically at its heart nothing more than a promise. And so the question is, can you trust the person who makes the promise? And once you lose trust in the bank, well, then the bank can't function. It fails. Once you lose your trust in the state, the state can't function, and it fails. See, I think there are two ways that promises fail. On the one hand, promises may be made either insincerely or rashly. Someone might make a promise that they in the end, decide they don't want to keep. Circumstances change, or maybe they were just lying. But sometimes someone will make a promise to you, and they don't keep that promise, not because they can't, but because they don't want to. But there's another kind of promise, isn't there, that, that people make to you that they can't keep, not because they don't want to, but because they just don't have the power. Imagine a parent promising their child that on Christmas morning they will wake up to see the streets covered in snow. It's a lovely promise to make, isn't it? It might make the child feel great in the moment. But what parent has the power to make it snow at Christmas? Sometimes people make promises they don't want to keep. Sometimes they make promises they can't keep. And so those promises fail. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, there is a promise that you can, in colloquial terms, take to the bank that is absolutely solid, absolutely something you can build your entire life, your entire identity, your entire future on because of the nature of the person who made it. So he begins uh, this argument in verse 13, page 1205 just a little way down on the left-hand side, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. And then uh, it goes on, verse 16, people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. 
Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What's the first? The first is the promise. God makes a promise to Abraham... And the writer says, that promise is completely unchangeable. It is completely firm. Why? Because it is impossible for God to lie. But this is the God for whom nothing is impossible. This is the God than whom there is no one greater. That's the point he's making, isn't it? And normally, if you want to make an oath, you swear by someone greater than yourself. That's kind of how money works. You basically swear by the government when you give someone a tenner. But God had no one greater to swear by. In other words, there is no possible greater being. There is nothing greater than him imaginable. So there is nothing that he can't do. If God says he'll do it, he'll do it. Because nothing, not a change in the economic climate not a change in the availability of raw materials, not a change in public opinion. Nothing can change God's ability to do what he has promised because there is no one greater. There is nothing more powerful. The problem the Weimar Germany uh, government had was that there were just bigger, stronger state actors out there, more reliable currencies, particularly the US dollar. But for God, there is no one greater. Nothing can stop him from doing what he says he's going to do. So when God makes a promise, that that promise will be kept is absolutely certain because he cannot lie and no one can stop him. That's the first of the two unchangeable things that God used to ensure that his people would have absolute confidence in what he promised. And the second is that actually he goes a step further and he he swears by himself. It's an extraordinary thing for God to do. To actually swear kind of on his own grave. That he will keep his promise. So there's the initial promise and then there's the oath. Those are the two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie which he gives to his people so that they know that what he has promised, the eternal life that he has promised, life forever with him in his presence, enjoying life as it was meant to be, that is an absolutely unshakable promise, completely secure for his people. It cannot fail. It is more solid than bricks and mortar. It is more solid than money in the bank. It is more solid than the most gold-plated of gold-plated pensions. It is based on the power of God himself and on his character as a God who cannot lie. So when I say nothing's impossible for God and it's impossible for him to lie, I hope you understand. Nothing's impossible for God in the sense that he can do whatever he wants But it's impossible for God to lie because God is perfectly good and unchangingly good. So he cannot do anything that's against his own character. That's the only constraint there is on God, is himself. 
and he cannot lie. And he makes a promise that is more solid than anything in the whole of the universe. Can be depended on when everything else fails. But I think the writer to the Hebrews is pointing us to something. When he talks about God swearing by himself, now we're used to this sort of, you know, the person who tries to convince you that they're not lying when they are lying by saying things like, oh, I swear on my mother's grave, and that kind of thing. People who, 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 who take vain oaths. Is God taking a vain oath when he swears by himself? Well, the verse that the writer's quoting from is at the end of Genesis chapter 22. Now, we've seen the story of Genesis chapter 22 fairly recently as a congregation, but just to remind you, and you know, or if you're new or visiting, God, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham that he is going to make him into a great nation, uh, and uh, that he's going to bless all the nations of the world through him. Uh, And it becomes clear, even though Abraham and his wife are in their 10th decade, it becomes clear that God is promising that he will give them a son, and through that son, he will bless the whole world. Now, as ridiculous as it seems that that promise should be fulfilled, it is, and Isaac is born. And in fact, Isaac's name means laughter, because uh, actually when Sarah, his mother, heard that she was to give birth in her 90s, she laughed at the promise of God. And so when he was born, in great rejoicing, they called him, slightly ironically, Isaac, which means he laughs. This improbable baby grows up. And in chapter 22 of Genesis, God says one of the most extraordinary and and, and actually awful, shocking things that you'll hear in, in the whole Bible. He says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, take him to the mountain I will show you, and there sacrifice him to me. Now, that is horrifying to anyone who reads it, but particularly horrifying to people who know the Scriptures, who know how much God hates the concept of human sacrifice, which was practiced by the nations around in the worship of a God called Moloch, or Molech. And God hates human sacrifice, but here he seems to say, you are to take your son and sacrifice. In fact, he does say it clearly. And and Abraham takes Isaac and they go up this mountain. It's called Moriah. Uh, And they go up the mountain. And um, Abraham gets his son to carry the the, the wood on his back for the altar. And Abraham himself carries the the fire to to set fire to the the sacrifice and, and the knife to kill the sacrifice with. And as they're walking up, Isaac says to him, Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says to him, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And it's not written in the text, but reading between the lines, you can just imagine that Isaac's reply to that might be, oh, what, you mean the way he provided me? And you can only imagine Abraham's reaction if Isaac did indeed say that. But they get to the top of the mountain... They build an altar, they put the wood on top of it, they take the wood off Isaac, put it on the altar, they take Isaac, and they put him on the wood and they tie him up, and Abraham raises the knife. And at just that moment, 
an angel calls to Abraham and says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not touch him. Abraham looks up. There's a ram caught uh, in a thicket. And the ram takes the place of Isaac on the altar and the ram is offered in, in Isaac's place. And Genesis 22 tells us, from that day forward, that place was known as the Lord shall provide. And there's a saying, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now, I've been to Mount Moriah. I've been to the place where that happened. And a long time after, Abraham did not sacrifice Isaac. When God spared Abraham's only son, the son whom he loved, and provided a substitute for him, In exactly the same spot, a young man was nailed to a cross of wood. That young man's name was Jesus. He was the son of God himself. So you see, when God says, I swear by myself, I swear on my own grave if you like, he's not kidding. It is himself that bears the cost of this promise. It is his own son, not Abraham's son. Not my mother's son or my son that dies there on Mount Moriah in modern day Jerusalem. So can you trust God's promise? For sure you can. Because not only does God not lie, not only can God do whatever he says he's going to do, but he has shown his utter and total commitment to keeping that promise in the death of his own son. And that takes us to verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We'll find out about Melchizedek next year. But what the writer's pointing us to is that Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice and that he has gone into the holiest place in heaven, but that he has gone there as our forerunner. He's gone there ahead of us and planted an anchor. So if you go back to that clip we began with, that scene of someone just floating off in space, attached to nothing, if you ever watch footage of astronauts undertaking a spacewalk, what you'll always see, or almost always see, is that they are tethered to the spacecraft. They have an anchor. They can't just float away because they are physically connected to the spacecraft that is their place of safety. And it's that sort of picture. 
that certainty of God's promise, that certainty of Jesus who has gone into heaven on our behalf is that we're connected to him and where he goes, we must follow. It's certainty. It's utter security. So look what he says uh, in verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. If you're looking for security, if you're looking for certainty, there is only one place you're going to ultimately find it, and it is Jesus. He has gone ahead of us. He has made heaven our home, the new heavens and the new earth, the presence of God himself. Unless you unbuckle yourself from Jesus, you cannot float free. He will safely bring you there. No matter how weak you might feel, no matter how frail your faith might be, if your faith is in Jesus, he will bring you home. Because you see, that's how faith works. Um, one great example of uh, faith is uh, air travel, isn't it? You know, you climb into an extremely heavy metal box and expect it to fly and take you safely over the ocean. Now, some people, they know how um, uh, fluid dynamics and aerodynamics work. They, they know the theory of flight. They're absolutely that they, they, they know the, the safety record of airlines, they know the safety procedures, they're absolutely convinced. They step on board an airliner without a second thought, without any worry at all. They have faith. Some people are terrified of flying. They look at this big metal box and they think, how is that going to stay up? They've heard about uh, air tragedies which are relatively few but have happened, and they think, could happen to me. I really don't want to get on this plane. I'm terrified. They get on the plane. They're sort of strapped down, and they're, they're asking for the drinks trolley to come round before takeoffs even happen because they need something to settle their nerves. They're, they're absolutely shaking as the engines begin to roar. Their faith is pretty weak in one sense, isn't it? They've got lots of doubts. They're very confused. They're very anxious. Tell me, does the one whose faith is stronger get to New York any quicker? Because in the end, your, your confidence isn't in the strength of your faith, it's in the aeroplane. And Jesus is the same. It's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong he is. And you just have to trust him. Enough to put your faith on, in him and just hang on. And if you do, well then, you are more securely in heaven even now than you are as a resident in your own home that you own now, if you own one. It's extraordinary, isn't it? 
But the promise of God is that certain, that secure. So, let's just read verse 18 again. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. It's my prayer for you this morning that you are greatly encouraged. That actually you will see for yourselves in a fresh way just how dependable, how certain, how secure the promises of God to you really are.